Good evening, everyone, and welcome to The Real Science Exchange, the podcast where leading scientists and industry professionals meet over a few drinks to discuss the latest ideas and trends in animal nutrition. Calves are one of our most important resources as they set the trajectory for our entire herd and represent our future productivity and profitability. Getting them to the milking stream can be expensive, but the investment made in growing them correctly, getting them to maturity on time will pay off in the end. Hi, I'm Scott Sorrell, your host here at the Real Science Exchange. Every operation is looking for ways to be most efficient. Sometimes cutting back around the young stock is considered as an option. Tonight, we'll take a look at this topic and show how appropriate investment in your young stock will pay off big in later years. First, I'd like to uh, welcome uh, Dr. Gavin Staley, veterinarian and technical service specialist with Diamond V. I'd like to welcome you to the Real Science Exchange, Gavin. Good to see you here tonight. Thank you, Scott. Uh, in keeping with tradition at the exchange, what's in your glass tonight, and is there a story behind how you chose that? Oh, absolutely, um, Scott. So this is Amarula cream liqueur, which comes from my home continent. It is made from the berries of the marula plant, which is a wild-growing tree. Mm. And, um, in fact, the animals know about it, and when these fruit get fermented, they are known to get quite tipsy. There are YouTube <laughs> videos out there of elephants tottering around uh, after consuming marula fruit. So it is a very distinct taste, and I uh, thought it very appropriate for uh, for my South African heritage today. Yeah, very nice. I was going to ask you to kind of touch on that, the continent you're from, and, and then how did you find your way into uh, dairy science? So... Um, South African raised and born and educated, I guess, um, graduated back in 84 as a veterinarian. So it's amazing how quickly the years go by. Mm. Had um, various experiences. We all went to the military back then. Uh, so I spent two years running around uh, the kingdom of Zululand in brown fatigues. And then I went back to university and studied for a master's degree while being on staff as a senior lecturer in reproduction. And then I joined a large dairy practice back in my home town uh, for several years, about six years. And then for various reasons, um, the opportunities in South Africa seem to be somewhat written on the wall. And my wife and I left uh, back 22 years ago joined a practice in Wisconsin, had a, I had four winters and that was enough <laughs> and uh, <laughs> was offered a position with Monsanto Tech Service in California back then and um, stepped off the plane and said, this feels a lot like home and never left. So I've been in the Central Valley now for uh, oh, 18 years odd, right in proximity to, as you know, a, a lot of cows. And it's been yeah. a wonderful experience. Yeah, great absolutely. Learning. Yeah, great to hear that. I see you brought a guest with you tonight. Would you mind uh, introducing him? Yeah, I, I just wanted to thank Al, you know, very gracious of you to come on. Thank you so much for being part of this. Um, Al has a great deal of experience in this field, a lot of practical experience with calves and heifers. Um, knows way more than I do about these uh, the practicalities of it and so i'm very honored that he's he's part of this today so thank you al yeah 
Well, you're welcome, Gavin. Uh, I appreciated your presentation, and I'm, I'd like to talk more about it as we get into this program. Yeah, great. Al, tell us a little bit about yourself, and then uh, in keeping with the theme, what's in your glass tonight? Okay. Uh, I like beer, a lot of the craft beers. Uh, this time of the year, until Easter, I do the non-alcoholic beer, and this is a German one. It's Klaus Thaler, and it has, I think, the best real beer taste without the alcohol so that's how mm. i selected it very nice um i grew up about uh, an hour south here in a small dairy farm went to the university of missouri and then i had a cup i did a bachelor's master's there in dairy science that time it's called dairy husbandry um then i had two years in the army obligation like gavin i had spent one year in the natick laboratories in the boston area and the Second year in food supply in Thailand during the Vietnam War. Then I did a PhD at Cornell University, and that turned out to be a, a significant project we were involved in because it was in growth and development of cattle. And that's really the base for so much of my interest in growing calves and heifers and also the metabolic changes that occur in body composition of cows. I went to work for the Purina companies, and that lasted until uh, year 2000. And I went to work for what had been the international company. That only lasted a year and a half until um, we were bought and kind of closed out. So I started doing my own consulting business, a lot of uh, writing and speaking and on-farm consulting. Uh, a lot of that international. Um, I said, really, there's no difference in the cows in other countries. It's the people and the uh, economic and social situation that, that differs. Um, and then that, that resulted in my putting together a book that I published, uh, it'll be two years ago. No, yeah, it'll be three years ago this summer. It's available if you Google me on Amazon or Barnes & Noble. And so... It's, it's a good reference for me because it's a compilation of a lot of the columns I've written in feedstuffs over about 20 years. People kept bugging me about writing a book, and I said, I'm thinking of an academic book. And I thought, I can't do that. I don't know how to do that, and it's too much work and so on. And then finally, I realized I've written it in pieces, and I just need to piece it together in a better format. And so I use it a lot for reference myself, easier than going through my computer and digging out the files. Oh, very nice. We'll have to put the uh, link to that in our show notes. Um, you had mentioned that you'd gone to Cornell. Were you there when uh, Dr. Van Soest was there? I definitely was. I can contribute some good stories about him. He was a remarkable man. As many of you know, he just died last year. Uh, he was very self-effacing, very humble man very bright, almost eccentric, and he would talk to anybody about anything, and he knew a lot about anything. And uh, in, in a laboratory, though, he was like an elephant. Hmm. He was kind of dangerous. <laughs> and and one day, one of, the, one of the classic stories is there were about a half a dozen of us taking his laboratory analysis course, NDF and ADF, and he was starting from scratch showing how you make the detergents the neutral detergent, the acid detergent. So he had a box of the sodium lauryl sulfate detergent. And um, it was it's very hydrostatic. So he opened the cardboard box and he opened the 
plastic lining and he's digging in there and then he turns around and when he turns around we all broke out laughing because he looked like Santa Claus. The stuff had stuck to his beard. <laughs> and, and, you know, at first he, he looked kind of aghast, like, what's wrong? What's wrong? And then he realized what it was. And then he laughed as much as anybody. <laughs> that was the thing about him. He was so yeah. self-effacing. He was a very humble man, very bright, would talk to anybody and just um, gained a lot from my experience working with him there. Yeah, we uh, we recorded a podcast, uh, you know, in honor of him uh, a few weeks ago. We had uh, Mike Van Amberg, uh, Mary Beth Hall, and uh, Dave Mertens. Uh, Dave, yeah. yeah, Dave Mertens, and uh, boy, was that enjoyable. I, I I think we could probably do a series of podcasts. Oh uh, yeah, with yeah. how many stories are out there on him. Right. So anyway, I wanted to bring that up. Uh, so thank you about that uh, on that. Um, Tonight, co-host, Dr. Glenn Ains, once again. Glenn's the technical service manager here for Balchem. Uh, Glenn, you've been at the pub a lot lately. Uh, would we be concerned? <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> but I enjoy being here, so you can invite me back anytime, Scott. Uh, you're, you're a great, you're a great uh, co-host, so you're welcome anytime. Uh, Glenn, what are you drinking tonight? Well, I'm actually drinking a, a product of beer. As you well know, I'm, I'm quite fond of beer. Yep. And uh, I kind of become an IPA guy. Ah. And uh, this is called High Five IPA. It's manufactured and brewed just right across the river in uh, Fort Myers, Florida. And uh, it's a good one. So uh, it's nice to have it. It's easy access. Yeah, good. It's good to have a, a co-host without a cider once in a while. So that's that's good. Yeah, I don't, I don't, don't do the ciders. <laughs> don't do the ciders. <laughs> All right. All right. Tonight's PubCast stories are brought to you by Reassure Precision Release Choline. Reassure is the most researched encapsulated choline on the market today, consistently delivering results to your transition cows of higher peak milk, reduced metabolic disorders, and even in utero benefits to her calf leading to growth and health improvements. Visit Balchem.com to learn more. Gavin, to get us started tonight, you were part of the Real Science Lecture Series, and you started us off here in, in 2022. In your presentation, you mentioned that heifers set the, the production ceiling for the entire herd. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, certainly, uh, Scott. So one thing I do a lot of is look at records. I am not a statistician, uh, really. I'm more of a practitioner, and so I stay fairly close to the dairies. But over the years, you can imagine being in uh, the Central Valley, Valley Act software, it became the language. You really have to understand it pretty well if you stay here. And um, so I accumulated a lot of backups. And um, the background to this particular story was I was sitting in a dairyman's office in January 2016, looking at records in a management meeting. And uh, it came up the discussion with the nutrition. Oh, you know, my, uh, the Posilac's not working. Uh, you know, I've, I feed these two dairies, they get 92 pounds, and the one's on Posilac and the other one isn't. And, and anyway, Long story short, I went through the records back and forth, and the only thing I could figure out was that this dairyman who was on Posilac was uh, breeding his heifers about six weeks earlier than the other dairy. And um, that got me really thinking because, by golly, you know, Posilac's not cheap. And um, if it's just a case of raising heifers for another six weeks, that's a big deal. And um, 
as we'll probably go into that some more, but that led to this whole um, uncovering in a way of what had gone on in the heifer world out here. But while I was looking at these records, I noticed that the, the one dairy that um, had, well, I'll call it more mature heifers, uh, there were two dairies that I compared initially, um, it was a 92 pound herd. And guess what? The heifers were 92 pounds at about 10 to 14 weeks. And my guest once trained as a veterinarian to be observant. And I looked at that and I thought, man, is that coincidental or what? And I started digging into um, more and more herds. Eventually I had several hundred that I looked at. And there was a, a remarkable correlation between 10 week milk and the average annual herd of the whole, the whole dairy. So I'll just say that again, 10 week milk, 10, 12, somewhere there is, and uh, I, I did a rough correlation with about 150 hertz. It was 92% correlation. So if you think about that for a second and flip it around, if you want to be a hundred pound herd, you have to have hundred pound heifers at 10 weeks. So any way you look at it, uh, you, you can't, you can't outrun these heifers. If they set the, the bar at 75 pounds, 75 pounds is what you'll be. You can't cull your way there. You can't reap your way there. You can't, uh, you can't feed your way there. They, they are the ceiling. And uh, I'm absolutely 100% convinced of that, uh, that that is true. And therefore, it is absolutely critical that we do a slam dunk job of getting them to where we want them to be. So Scott, that's the sort of the background started in the dairyman's office and um, led to to one of several uh, observations. But that was the, I think, the most important one. Hmm. It leads kind of to a two part question I've got in mind. <clears throat> First is, you know, during your investigation, uh, where did you find that most of the dairymen were in terms of um, um, freshing their heifers uh, during the most, uh, I, I guess, 24 months looked like from your presentation where most of them should be. Um, and where were most dairymen? And then two, how much uh, have you been able to move the needle in, in the time that you've been sharing this story? Yeah, you know, um, Scott, uh, thinking back to 1982, whenever I did uh, animal husbandry back at the University of Pretoria, I still remember to this day they drummed it into us. 24 months, that's when these animals needed to calve, you know, so what's that, nearly 40 years ago, right? Mm -hmm. It was 24 months. And um, anyway, um, and to a large extent, that was probably what was going on just um, almost by accident, I guess. Guys were raising their heifers and breeding them at 14 months to get them in somewhere around two years. And then, of course, hard times come and then uh, the, the spotlight is focused on areas to save and as, as you mentioned earlier heifers often uh, come under that right with seen as that they are such an expensive part of the the operation obviously it's there is some um, reason to do that the problem is and i use this uh, you know it's it's somewhat tongue-in-cheek of course as i say two two emails went out right the first email said hey good news you can breed heifers earlier, maybe 22 months um, instead of 24 to bring them in at that. But the second email said you can't do things the same way you used to. 
and that one, as I jokes, I say it goes went straight to spam. So a lot of dairymen got the message: "Oh, breed early, breed earlier." You know, a year or eleven months, and um, there's this kind of catch-up feeling. Oh well, you know, they they'll compensate. It'll all be good. It'll wash out. Well, the truth of the matter is, it never does wash out. It's it cast a very long shadow and um, so what i had seen was guys creeping down to uh, you know 21 22 months but the average daily gains were not in sync at all they were they were six weeks to two months out and so you had this disparity this disconnect if you like between management and biology and that's that caused the tension which i saw in the records now to your second part of your question, I've had a great deal of fun with this particular topic, and more so than I thought I would, because when a dairyman sees the records, his records, on his computer, the production graphs by Aged Freshening, and sees that, that rainbow display of lost milk, for not just lactation one, but lactation two. I've had dairymen pick up the phone in the office and call their breeders and say, as of today, you are breeding at this day, stage because it's incredibly powerful when you can couple that to this first statement, which is 10-week milk is your final milk. And then you show the difference in, in by age freshening. So that has resulted in a number of dairies. And it's it's actually been a very pleasant outcomes seeing dairies now six years later five years later that have done this and pushed back um you, you know more towards the 23 months and then watch the milk production going up but your heifers are just the secret to a lot of good things on the dairy so most of those dairies are they just pushing back the breeding date or are they going all the way back to calving and you know, early nutrition to, to try and get those calves up to that physiological maturity faster. Yeah, Glenn, so there's two options. There are, are only two options. And that's why I'm very glad that Al's in on this uh, too, because he has a great deal of experience with the early calves and so forth. Here, here's the deal. You either up the ADG or you delay breeding. Those yeah. are the only two options. And frankly, in many setups where you've got, um, you know, heifer raising facilities where there's a number of different philosophies possibly represented, um, it's a per diem situation. Um, it's it's easier to delay uh, the breeding at the ADG that it is, and achieve uh, maturity that way. It, it's to get the ADG up to where it needs to be to bring an animal at 21 months is quite a, a task. I mean, we're talking over two pounds and no wobbles and good lung uh, scores. Um, but it does go right back to day one. And, and uh, you know, I, I'll say this too. I think we've had the wrong approach with heifers to a large extent, somewhat of survival of the fittest. Um, you know, they like the old far-off cows, you know, people just kind of almost forgot about them. And then suddenly we realized they were important. Well, heifers, it turns out, are super, mm -hmm. super important. And we need to be paying attention from, from day one. And not just till they're out of the, the hutches and through the into the run pens, 
and then forgotten and fed whatever. Um, we need to be monitoring this process right through. Um, if the product is going to be acceptable at the end. It seems to me like there might be a bit of a difference between like weight and maturity. <clears throat> They're obviously related, but there's differences, right? I mean, weight can be body condition. And so maybe I'd like to ask Al, you know, Al, where, where do you find the balance? What, what do you see on around that? Well, I would like to go and kind of establish a framework here. We're starting with a calf. When a Holstein calf is born, a heifer calf, it's going to be about 90 pounds. And a Dairy Calf and Heifer Association says the gold standard is double the calf's body weight in two months. So you go from 90 to 180. And then if you do the arithmetic that you want a 24-month-old heifer, it says you need to average about 1.8 pound gain after that. Now, a lot of people understand that, but that what they don't understand and don't measure is height. And the height is the best indicator of the frame that weight is going to be deposited on. And the height I found was quite different and published this in the late nineties in the journal dairy science. So if, uh, 90 pound calf is 30 inches high at the withers. As a first calf heifer, it'll be about 24 inches higher in two years. Now that's not linear though, during that two year period. Mm -hmm. it, half of that occurs in the first six months and that's what's staggering. And then only 25% in the next six months and then only 25% in the last year before they have the first calf. So if you don't make the height increase when it's biologically controlled, typically by growth hormone, you can't make it up later. And then to Gavin's point, if, if you're looking only at daily gain and you don't have the height develop to the genetic potential, it doesn't mean we should get taller heifers. That's not the story at all. If if you don't have the height and you put on the weight, you're going to start fattening them. And there are studies in beef and dairy that show that when you get up to about a kilo of daily gain, so that's about 2.2 pounds, that's the maximum amount of protein deposition. So if you push that higher, it's all going to be fat. And we know that when you have fat heifers or fat cows, they have calving difficulties because the birth canal is where the fat is internally deposited. And once you have a calving difficulty, you have a compromised calf and cow, or whether it's first calf or later. So we have to kind of keep that in mind. And then to that, the, the problem is, as Gavin has pointed out, is um, most operations don't measure their calves and heifers. They don't know how tall they are at various points and um, may not even know their weight, but most likely not their height. And it's easier often if you're gonna do height to measure hip height instead of wither height. Well, you can take a wither height uh, curve and add two inches to it and that's hip height. 
So if you want to do hip pipes, that's fine. You just add two inches to that. Now, there are going to be genetic differences depending on the, you know, the herd and all that sort of thing. And that's why you'll have some variation in um, the average age of first calving. So if you have an average of 24 months, and, and that's what we had when I was with Purina, you'd find some down to 20 months and some up to 26. But to make either one of those a pattern is a problem because it's like the the biology and the chronology works best for 24 months. So that's why I was really interested in Gavin's work because he's got field data that shows what happens if you push that far further down. Now, okay, you push it further down because if it costs you $30 more a month, to raise a heifer, you want to save that. But in the process of saving that, you lose milk or you create body condition problems, then you're worse off than you were not doing that. So that's kind of the framework I, I often think about when I look at these situations. And so I remember one time being on a um, operation in um, Southeast on a, on a pasture. And he said, well, what do you think of our heifers? And they look pretty good heifers. And I said, before I can tell you what I think of them, tell me how old they are. Well, they were about three months older than they should have been. And so they looked good for that, but they weren't. And, and then another problem is that if you don't get the calves off to a good start, they don't do as well. And that's been shown by some of Mike Van Amberg's work um, that the rate of gain in the first two months directly relates to milk production in the first, second, and third lactation. And one of the problems is that we don't do a good enough job weaning calves. We, I call that a, a transition period, two weeks before and two weeks after weaning. If you don't get adequate starter intake and preferably a texturized because you get better rumen development, adequate starter intake. When you wean them, that's too big a change. And they struggle for at least two weeks and sometimes a month. And this is shown by the, the most recent NOMS uh, data from 2018. That it was published in the Journal of Dairy Science, but I had to pull the data out. They were there, but they didn't recognize it. And the average daily gain before weaning was 1.6 pounds. Now that's good because that'll double your body weight in two months. But after weaning, it was 1.3 pounds. So it went backwards. Yeah. And that's because there's too big a change. There's just too many changes and often that sort of thing. And the other factor is that when calves at that age have that much of a change, they get really stressed they their immunity drops and they're more likely to have a respiratory problem now maybe the instance of respiratory problem isn't that great that you see it as a clinical case but there's some field data from cornell that showed in the 90s that when a calf had a respiratory problem based on the farm's records not based on a clinical diagnosis of pneumonia when they tracked that calf all the way through the herd they found they were six months older when they had the first calf. They were called sooner. And so you should have gotten rid of them early on. But they don't notice it because they don't follow their records. I had that shown uh, 
clear to me one time in China when I was on a dairy farm that was uh, being served by a U.S. veterinarian. And he had DairyCom 305 records. And I told him about this. So he pulled up his uh, herd, or his, his heifers, and he had, the, you know, the age and he had the weight. And he drew a stro- straight line and went through most of the population. But here were some of these points on the lower end. And every one he clicked on had had a respiratory problem. So it's there. We just don't often think of it because we feel like, oh, we treated that calf and it recovered. But it's damaged, and we just haven't monitored enough to notice that. And so when it gets into lactation and doesn't perform well, it gets cold. Well, then you've, you've cost yourself a lot of money, and you cost yourself some time and facilities and all that sort of thing. Hmm. You know, you mentioned getting them started uh, uh, off right. Well, getting them started off right doesn't just start at, uh, at birth, right? I mean, one of the things that we're interested in at, uh, at Balchem is transgenerational uh, nutrition, right? Yes. So it starts not just with the mother, perhaps, you know, even the mother's mother in terms of the nutrition that they got is going to have a bearing on how well that animal performs. Uh, once they're born and then into to the milking string. I find that fascinating. Do you guys have any experience or comments on that? Well, I've seen your data in, in the research uh, trials from Florida. And, you know, they're showing the same thing with heat stress, mm-hmm. that those calves aren't as large. They aren't, aren't, don't complete their gestation. And so they struggle. And then their next generation struggles as well. So now you have uh, data from a nutritional standpoint and from a developmental standpoint that both show the same thing. What you're saying is their in utero development is very critical. Yeah, just to add to that, um, you know, out here, winter is also a terrible time for us. And you'd think it's the heat stress, but when you look at the ADGs, Winter is, is by far the worst time. Um, and, you know, the, the problem is, so let's take a heat-stressed herd. Well, when do most cows calve in the heat-stressed herd? It's in the summer. So now we've got transgenerational heat stress in a lot more animals. I mean, talk about setting yourself up for failure, right? This is just forever. Uh, I have said to, to many dairymen, you can hardly spend enough money cooling your cows. Yeah, we had a, we had a lecture with Dr. Israel Flammenbaum from yes. Israel uh, talked about the importance of keeping uh, those animals cool. He, he even uh, indicated that he thinks he can do away totally with, with heat stress, with, with proper uh, uh, cooling and, and uh, fans. So found that quite interesting. If you haven't listened to that one, would encourage you to go back and, and listen to that. Um, real quick question uh, maybe for uh, Dr. Staley. Talking about mature heifers, what's the biology behind uh, heifers that, that, that reach maturity uh, at first calving? What's, what's the biology that allows them to do that? Is it just the, the, the reproductive machinery, the productive machinery is just more mature and, and, and uh, able to produce more milk? So I I think there's a little bit of a disconnect between puberty, repro, and maturity. Because you can see, you can certainly get animals pregnant 
way too early. Mm -hmm. So they are ready to tango reproductively, but not long-term maturity-wise. And so I just want to bring up this, this next point because it begs the question, so what is mature? And very few dairies know what their mature body weight is. And I'll say that again, very few dairies know what their mature body weight is. And if we think that this is the denominator for a lot of things, including the nutrition program on a dairy, it really, really, really begs the question, why don't we? For example, when we bought a scale um, five years ago to, to validate all this, I bought a scale and had it delivered here and weighed a lot of animals. And um, it was amazing the difference between what dairymen thought the animals weighed and what they actually weighed. And so you can have an animal, a, a dairy that the mature body weight is 1,700 pounds and the dairyman's under the illusion that it's 1,580 or 16. Well, that's a huge difference in what your goal is for those heifers, right? So to keep everything honest, I, I think what you really got to do is take the time to weigh those third and fourth lactation animals somewhere in mid-lactation to establish, okay, what is the genetic makeup? What's the, the genetic body condition score composite for this group of animals that I've bred all these years? Because then I know what I'm aiming for. Otherwise, we're shooting in the dark, I believe. Yeah, you know, as you were saying that, you know, everybody will say, well, you know, I don't have scales on my operation, right? But I go back to what Al was saying a little bit ago about uh, hip height or wither height. You know, that is a relatively easy measurement. Basically, you need a fence or a stick or whatever. Why would they not necessarily be better off looking at uh, wither height or, or hip height when they get into that target breeding age, if you will. So you can either breed on age, that's easy, that's universal, right? But weight can be misleading, right? But the hip height, if you can figure out what your mature hip height ought to be, wouldn't that be a better target or a better tool as opposed to just doing it on weight? So, so let me comment on that, because I had that exact, I was faced with that conundrum. So you're looking for relatively a small increment in in height at that time frame, uh, and Dr. Kurtz will be able to tell us, but you're looking at about an inch a month, if you're lucky, I think it's somewhere around about there, versus about 60 pounds. So in, in a pen of 300 heifers, uh, and you know what those those feed lanes look like with manure, all sorts of, you know, up and down, it's it's actually quite hard I think, to easily get in there and do a, um, a height. So what typically happens is tape. You know, they put tape on the, on the headlocks. When, when an animal reaches that tape, it's ready to breed. It, it's not very easy to pick up one inch of hairy, hairy coated mm -hmm. animal in, in a pen at six in the morning. I've, I've been very facetious and said, I'll tell you what 42 inches looks like. She's in heat and she's in the breeding pen. You've hit on a couple of good points I'd like to elaborate a little bit about. The height is difficult to measure. It's uh, you got to have them in headlocks or some way of doing that. And then in their second year, when they're in that breeding group and have been bred, they're only going to increase six inches in height. 
So it's very difficult to pick up height differences at that point. You're better off looking at it at the end of six months when they should have picked up 12 inches from birth. And then maybe at 12 months, uh, because then you've got the, the biggest increase in height. Just in general, it's difficult for dairies in calf and heifer operations to weigh or measure height. There's an Israeli group that's developed a 3D camera system, and I've written about it in uh, Feastus and Hordes Dairyman. Unfortunately, nobody's commercialized it. I think that would be really a good system and could uh, readily be incorporated on, on operations where maybe you could have heifers at certain age and calves uh, at least past two months. You could take them by that or through a uh, area where that's measured and then it's calculated. And yeah. then back to the mature height uh, or the mature weight and height, uh, what we found was that, you know, there, you've got to be in your third or fourth lactation. And by that time, there aren't that many cows left in the sure. herd because of culling. So it's difficult to establish what the mature weight is or height without oh, of course you can spot check some and you can you can get an idea about that now they uh when it when a cow or a heifer calves they lose 11 percent of their body weight right then and then heifers will make another 11 percent growth in their first lactation and then about two more inches of height till they become mature but if you don't have any measurements of that, you don't really know what the situation is. And I'm like Gavin, you know, when people say, well, what do you think the weight is here? I'm not willing usually to guess because I know it's, it's going to be a kind of a potluck thing to figure mm -hmm. out the weight and the age. It yeah, just it, seems like, yeah, it just seems like it's such a critical issue getting them bred at the at the right size and age uh, yeah you know uh, um at one point i wished i'd had some kind of commission from this particular scale group because um <laughs> there was one scale that crossed the the sierra nevadas and that was the one i bought well after within two or three years there were a lot of scales that came out here because it's really not that expensive it was like 3,500. You don't need bells and whistles. Yeah. And you just set it up in the alleyway, and they're, they're fantastic. As soon as you've got four pressure points, it gives you the, the weights. And what, what some dairymen are doing is they're weighing the animals around about 12 months. And then they're using that as a differential, uh, a kind of a, a sort gate, if you like, uh, in that, okay, so the animals that are on target will be eligible, and those that aren't, based on two pounds a day, Will become eligible at such and such a time and that way they're trying to bring together a a confluence of maturity if you like by actually using a weight um and i will just say to the point earlier one cannot make butter balls the caveat is do not over condition yeah. these animals yeah. weight on its own is deadly because we can make fat heifers very quickly there's a large calf and heifer ranch in Spain that I've worked with, and um, they raise about 6,000 a year. 
and from 130 different dairies. So they really have good records and keep a lot of data that most operations don't. In fact, that was there's a good publication in the ARPAS journal uh, recently by Alex Bach and, and the manager Jose Ajito and myself about that because it's one of the few places that they have good data. And one of, the, one of the problems that you have to be concerned about on any operation is grouping. So if you group too many just wean calves, they, of course, all have established a, a social order, and the lower end of that social order won't do as well. If you want to kind of change directions here is um, what impact does uh, having the heifers mature at first calving, what impact does that have on longevity? Going back to a comment that, that Al made earlier about, uh, you know, the distribution of, of uh, lactations within the herd. So can we improve it by making sure those heifers uh, are mature when they first calve? Could I first crack at sure, that? Sure, absolutely. So this is this is very close and near and dear to my heart. In fact, I'm working on a, a presentation as we speak on this exact thing, productive life, and um, setting these heifers up at the beginning adequately. I call them platinum heifers. Call them whatever you like, you know. Um, but a, a philosophy of the best possible genetic expression of these animals, uh, as El was saying, you know, and the run pens and all the rest. But if we bring in just the right number of these high value heifers that transition well, that produce well, we will be able to cut our culling down, our involuntary culls. I'm convinced of that. And ultimately, um, if I likened it to a tree, and if we had, if I could draw it, I'd draw it for you. But every dairy basically should be like a good old California redwood, and it should be pretty narrow at the base, roughly about 30% L1s, and then progressively get narrower. But if if we have too many heifers that are poor do, poor doers at the bottom of the tree, our tree doesn't look like a redwood. It looks like some kind of like a Chinese hat, right? Broad on mm. the base and sharp. And, and you'll never get longevity that way. It's straight maths. You actually have to have the top of the tree about 15%, five and sixes, to get a two six or two seven. So these heifers are critical because if they if they have high attrition, our tree looks like it got struck by lightning. Sure. And I, th I think part of the problem there can be that if you have um, too many heifers, for whatever reasons, you've been using sex semen or whatever it is, and and you try to push them through your facility, they're too crowded, and you're doing an injustice to all of them. Sure. Rather than going back, as Gavin says, and selecting the heifers, and now there's genomics that you can do some of that with, mm -hmm. and not having more heifers than you need, because what often happens if you have more heifers than you need, you push the cows out of the herd. Because you're, you're bringing the heifers along. They got to go yeah. someplace. Absolutely, Al. You know, and um, I, I love genetics, but I, I use an, this analogy, if you will um, allow me, uh, Scott. You know, uh, having good genetics, I say, is a lot like having uh, sending a kid to Stanford College, you know, a top, top school and the tuition's uh, right up there and it's wonderful. The only problem is that that kid never graduates. 
That is what it's like having great genetics, but these animals never get to express it. It's a Stanford kid syndrome. Hmm. Uh, you pay for a high quality heifer and then you don't, uh, you don't treat her right. No, no. You get her. Yeah. You, yep. you, never, you yep. never get her right sometimes. Yeah, most we never get her. The most expensive animal in the herd is that high quality, you know, genetic heifer that milks one day and then she's down the road, right? Yeah. Well, and another, another issue is when, when the herds weren't as large and they knew their genetics more and they had a DHI type record, you had actual and mature equivalent data and, and more information to evaluate the heifers. But when you've got the more larger uh, commercial herds, you don't have the genetic information and you don't have those kinds of information that you can calculate what the genetics should be and what it is and what is it in the first lactation versus the second lactation or in the third or fourth or fifth lactation. So without that information, it's, it's harder to see what's going on. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And there's an overriding um, young in, old out. Uh, you know, just the one lameness, one mastitis, one whatever, look at you skew, and the heifer shows up, knocks on the door, and an old cow goes. And when I say old cow, I'm not even saying she's a broken cow, I'm just saying she's a mature cow. There's this sort of promise of the future is young, and the future is wonderful, but the future never shows up. Hmm. You know, a related topic that you brought up, Gavin, during uh, uh, the webinar was that um, heifers that, that um, freshen when they're a little less uh, mature often have issues with metritis. Can you talk a little bit about that and what might be causing that? Yeah, certainly. So I think Al uh, alluded to that earlier. You know, I've spent many years of my career as a large animal practitioner. So I have pulled out a lot of calves on two different continents. And uh, the worst nightmare still was, you, you know, you called out and there's this little heifer, this teenage pregnancy, right? And of course, I'm using the extreme, but these animals that don't have the birth canal or have those big globules of fat, that's, it splits like a ripe uh, you know, papaya. Uh, those animals never end well. You, if you fill them up with antibiotics, they, uh, they lose body condition score. They don't breed back. Um, and there's frankly just a higher incidence of metritis, higher incidence of DOAs. I mean, right there's the giveaway. Right there's the giveaway. There's a higher correlation of DOAs and metritis, and never mind RPs. You know, if you start off with a bad repro tract, you know, good luck, good luck. And and versus an animal that's up there at you know um, 1,400 pounds and spits out a 90 pound calf, man, it's a pretty picture. I'm involved in a project where we're trying to look through some uh, large-scale uh, records that um, have calving difficulty scores, because I am convinced that's one of the most unsung, ununderstood problems on a dairy. So, if a calf is is difficultly difficultly being born, it's more likely to have to die. And, you know, barn dead often includes the first 24 hours. If it doesn't die, it's compromised and the cow's compromised. And so they, they never recover. At least the cow doesn't in that lactation. Uh, 
and, and so I think that, that we haven't done a good enough job of scoring and then looking as to why the score isn't very good for, for calving difficulty. Is it because the heifer's fat or the cow's fat? And if we knew that, we could, we could get a better picture of why this calving difficulty occurs. It's all nationally somewhere around maybe 10%. It's higher for first calf heifers, lower for older cows, but there's, there's seasonal variation. And we really haven't done a good job of looking through this and trying to sort out what are these issues that we don't recognize. Yeah, I, I really like what you're saying. And I, I've seen those calves and I, I dealt with the foals too the, and the equines that work. And I'll tell you what, they were dumb. I call them dumb animals. Uh, they were compromised at birth and they, they were not functioning well. I don't know if there's a sort of a cerebral palsy equivalent for animals, but they were slower. They didn't nurse. They didn't suckle. I mean, it's not going to end well. Yeah. You know, um, just one other point, too. You know, as we look at longevity um, and productive life, um, non-completion rate becomes really, really important. By non-completion rate, the number of animals that are born alive that actually make it to calving, mm -hmm. right? So this all fits in. We have to do a super, super job of keeping that NCR down, or we're going to have too much excess animal number in the system. Uh, uh, leading to obviously as um mentioned earlier you know uh, the expense of losing animals that you put so much money in mm -hmm. gentlemen your arguments are very compelling the data is very compelling uh we need to have these heifers mature when they when they calve um what's the solution what are the steps that get us to the solution i'll have first crack if you don't mind al um no. um you know, raising heifers, if you think about it, is like a production system. And it's one of the few systems I can think of that has no quality control. Can you imagine investing $2,000 in a system where you have very little quality control? They go in one side and they spat out the other side. The solution is actually to monitor this thing, to be very, very intentional. Weights, heights, whatever it takes to get this product to where it needs to be because the outcomes, if you don't, are long-term. In fact, they, I'd say, almost forever. So it's well worth the effort, but we, we're flying blind, in my opinion. So. I, I would agree, and so the more data and understanding about the growth process, how critical it is to have a good calving, a clean environment, good colostrum administration, and have a good weaning transition so we don't create problems then double that birth weight by the end of two months and then get on a good average daily gain of somewhere between 1.8 to two pounds you know it fluctuates some because the growth hormone is episodic in its release rate and and then measures if we don't have the measurements i'd have to agree with gavin I mean, why would you do something for two years and then at the end not really know for sure what you have until you go into the first lactation and maybe that's all they get because they haven't been well developed. Yeah, right. And that's true on so many dairies. It honestly is reality. 
but we have to have a better, simpler way of getting the height and the weight. And that's why uh, yes. I'm intrigued by this 3D system, camera Me system. Too. Me too. Uh, no, that, that makes a lot of sense. You know, when uh, during Gavin's presentation, uh, he he made the, the, the comment that you just got to have eyes on these animals, eyes on these animals. And it immediately popped into my mind, cameras, right? We're mm -hmm. starting to do so much with cameras, maybe too much, and uh, I want to get political. But um, – Right. So, yeah, I, th I think technology is going to play a big role in this someday. So it's, it's like a lot of things. If you don't find a simple way to do it, it simply yeah. won't happen. Yeah. Simple and um, cost effective. Yes. And, and I think it also has to be segmented, Al. I think that that oh, yeah. whole thing of understanding where that calf weans at, mm -hmm. where she's at, you know, a month later, and then what, you know, age, age and weight and height that at breeding those set the scale right because if you do that right and then the rest of it just feed her halfway decent as long as you don't overfeed her too much energy and get her into a butterball right you've got that, a good plane you can get there from there but boy that, if you don't get her to breeding age you know. that's why i think that two month period at weaning is key and then so is the six month because by the six month you should have half the height increase and if you don't yeah. have it and you got fat Sharp animals, you got a problem. Yeah, for life. <laughs> and the problem is going to be, you know, having each farm having some good idea of about yeah. where that is. Right. You know, as you said earlier, you know, mature size and weight, it's going to vary from dairy to dairy based on genetics. You see, and here's another thing there's always a pushback of spending that extra money on the protein, quality protein to get mm -hmm. that frame. Well, if we didn't need so many animals, Yes. We could easily spend that money on yeah. that. Yeah. 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 Gets back to your non-completion rate and your, your culling rate and, you know, longevity and all those things. Because if you don't have to have as many heifers, you can spend more money on those high-quality genetic heifers to get them into the herd, get them milking, and keep them there for a couple, three or four years if you can. Exactly. It's yeah. that simple. It's like the cohesive equation of dairy. Always sounds simple, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. reality rears its ugly head. <laughs> yeah. Great comments, guys. I don't know if you just noticed, but the lights did flicker, which means that is uh, time for last call. Tonight's last call question is brought to you by Niacer Precision Release Niacin. Niacin is a proven vasodilator for heat stress reduction and a powerful antilipolytic agent for lowering high blood NEFA in transition cows. Protected with Balchem's proprietary encapsulation technology, you can be sure it is being delivered where and when your cows need it. Learn more at balchem.com slash In wrapping up, would like to ask you guys just to um, talk to our audience about two or three things, impactful ideas for consultants, nutritionists, dairy farmers that they can do immediately to optimize their heifer production. And why don't we start with Glenn? Well, I'll start by saying that, uh, Gavin, I, I was enthralled when I saw your presentation. Um, and actually, I think I'm sort of kind of responsible for <laughs> getting you uh, in on our uh, Real Science Lecture Series because I, I thought Thank it was you. an amazing presentation with a whole bunch of really neat information. And Al, your, your contributions to, to CABS over the years are just incredible. Um, I was just looking at some stuff today, and I've got a, an article by you that was uh, 100 years of, of calves, a review, I think, was something along those lines that you had in dairy science. Um, so I, I thank you for 
everything you've done for the industry. I go back to what I started to say earlier. I think we just need to have, you know, a, a simpler way to identify these calves as being keepers or tossers before they get into the, to the lactation. And I think that's probably somewhere around, Ali, I think that weaning period, you know, that little transition you talked about, you know, do they make that transition well? And then getting them, you know, make sure they're uh, physiologically mature enough, at least from height and, and weight and body condition score or whatever. So if we can find a simpler way to do that, I think life will get a lot better for everybody. Al, what comments do you have? Well, I would kind of elaborate a little bit on that. Uh, I think it's important on, on any dairy operation that if you don't do it regularly, consistently, do it periodically. Let's get a dozen calf birth weights. And what's the range? Let's get a dozen calves weaning weights and heights. And what's the range? Let's get a dozen of them at six months. What's the height and the weight? And any operation can do that if they want to. It's a little extra work, but it's not like doing the whole thing. And then once you look at those numbers and you do them maybe a couple times a year, you'll have a much better idea where you are with your dairy <laughs> operation and what might need to be fixed. Yeah, yeah. great comments. Gavin will give you the final comments. So I'll, I'll just uh, follow on with what Al said too. I don't think you have to weigh every animal, all the heifers. I think you just you need to know what, how your system's operating. So you you need these little cohorts that you can just say, are we on track or aren't we? And to the simplicity message, if you have a fairly stable system, and you know that you are hitting your your goals of ADG and heights and weights, then you can go to aged breeding. If you know what the system is spitting out, you do not have to overcomplicate it like, oh, I have to weigh all these animals at breeding. You've, you've done your homework. You've done the weights. Now keep it simple. 420 days. This is what it is till further notice on this dairy. There's ways of making it very palatable. But uh, you've got to, got, to, got to have weights. And I, I'd love if these Israelis can fix this 3D thing. Uh, it'll be the solution, I'm sure. But um, right now, the scale works pretty well, um, in my experience, and I'd recommend every dairy has a scale. Mm -hmm. Very well. Gentlemen, big thank you. This has been a lot of fun. Uh, really appreciate spending some time with you today. It's been very uh, interesting, uh, great uh, information for dairy farmers. The, um, the title says it all, right? Maturity matters. It sets the mm -hmm. ceiling for the entire uh, herd. I think that there's nothing more that can be uh, said that, uh, that can be more convincing. Uh, so thank you very much. And I also want to thank our, our loyal listeners for stopping by here once again here at the uh, Real Science Exchange. Hope to see you next time here where, you're, uh, where it's always happy hour and you're always among friends. <laughs> thank you to you all. Hey. We'd love to hear your comments or ideas for topics and guests. So please reach out via email to anh.marketing at balchem.com with any suggestions, and we'll work hard to add them to the schedule. Don't forget to leave a five-star rating on your way out. You can request your Real Science Exchange t-shirt in just a few easy steps. Just like or subscribe to the Real Science Exchange and send us a screenshot along with your address and t-shirt size to anh.marketing at balchem.com. 
Balchem's Real Science Lecture Series of webinars continues with ruminant-focused topics on the first Tuesday of every month, monogastric-focused topics on the second Tuesday of each month, and quarterly topics for the companion animal segment. Visit balchem.com slash real science to see the latest schedule and to register for upcoming webinars. Thank you.